This podcast may contain content that is graphic and disturbing in nature. Listener discretion is advised. An eight-year-old girl is kidnapped in the middle of the night and left for dead. Miraculously, she survived. However, it would be nearly two decades for justice to be served. This is the Jennifer Shewitt story. Welcome back to the semester, Megan. Oh, welcome back. <laughs> Indeed. Yes, it's always tough. The end of January, beginning of February, kind of getting back in the groove of things. But we're getting there. We're getting there. February, it's a hard time to go back to school, you yeah. know. But yeah, you're right. We adjust. We, we do get there. And we recognize that we're lucky to have so much time yeah. off to be able to work on other endeavors and whatnot. Well, luckily, Megan, today's story some may find uplifting. It actually reminds me a bit of Mary Vincent's story. Do you recall that case? I do. Yes. It's a story of survival, I think some would say. Now, one of the things that comes up a lot of in our podcast is whether or not justice is served. So I think this story brings up the question of whether or not justice provides closure for victims. Are they one in the same? And especially after so much time has passed. So I think Jennifer's story is a prime example of why we should continue to examine cold cases. And no matter how much time has passed, this story helps to highlight the importance of solving a case no matter how many decades ago it happened. You know what? I used to watch there was a show. Do you remember the show Cold Case? I forget the actress who played her, but I really, really liked the show. And she was, you know, she would examine cases sometimes five years cold, sometimes 40 I remember like she had like a quote on the show. It was like a famous quote on the show. You know, someone said, well, you know, don't we have more important victims like out there, you know, who are waiting now? And she said that, well, they're more important because they've been waiting longer. Yep. So I remember that stuck with me. I was like, yeah, that's a great point. And also, I like the topic of closure. If you remember, we discussed this with Kim Goldman, and I think it's a really complicated topic. So I'm glad that you're going to address that today as well. Yeah. So before we get into our discussion on this idea of the intersection between closure and justice, let's meet Jennifer. Jennifer was born in May of 1982 to mother Elaine Shewitt. Now, it's unclear who her father was. And by all accounts, he wasn't in her life at all. In fact, they couldn't even find a name for him. But Jennifer and her mother were extremely close and her grandparents lived nearby and she was close with them as well. So for all of Jennifer's life, it was just her and her mother, Elaine, together. And Elaine described Jennifer as a very happy child, a little prone to nervousness, maybe a little more scared than the average child. But she functioned very well. She did well in school. She had many friends. And at the time of the events we'll be discussing, Jennifer was looking forward to starting third grade at her local elementary school. Jennifer and Elaine lived in a ground floor apartment of a Houston, Texas suburb called Dickinson. The town of Dickinson was a safe place by all accounts. Now, the complex was fairly large, and Jennifer had a lot of friends from the area who lived there who also went to school with her. Jennifer was very scared of the dark, and she consistently shared Elaine's bed at night. And on the night of August 9th, 1990, however, Elaine had told Jennifer that she'd had enough and that Jennifer would need to go sleep in her own bed. Now, Elaine had to wake up early for work, And with Jennifer sharing the bed, it made her lose a lot of sleep. And I totally get this. And, you know, Jennifer's eight years old at this point. So there does come a time when, as a parent, you're kind of like, okay, you need to learn how to sleep by yourself. I need to get my rest too. Right. So Jennifer reluctantly went to her room. 
But she didn't go right to sleep. She put on the light and she took a bunch of books into the bed with her and she started looking through her books. At some point, she drifted off to sleep. Neither Jennifer nor Elaine could have prepared for what happened next. In the morning of August 10th, Elaine awoke, happy to see that Jennifer hadn't tried to come back to sleep with her again. So she started getting ready for work and she went to Jennifer's room to wake her up for the day. But when she opened the door, she was shocked to find that the bed was empty and the window was wide open. Oh, my God. Now, remember, they had a first floor apartment, so the window wasn't very far off the ground. So it would have been very easy for Jennifer to leave or even worse for someone else to have gotten into the room. As any parent would, Elaine panicked and started looking everywhere for her daughter. She felt that something was wrong because she did not believe that Jennifer would ever run away on her own accord. And she also did not think Jennifer would have left to go hang out with her neighborhood friends. She simply just wasn't that kind of child. Remember, I mentioned she was a nervous child by nature. So her mother did not believe she would have done this. And she was afraid of the dark. Yep. But Elaine had held out hope that maybe Jennifer had climbed out the window. Maybe perhaps she was playing a trick on her mother. But after calling around to all the neighbors, it soon became very clear that Jennifer was not with any of her neighborhood friends. And she was, in fact, nowhere to be found. Elaine called the police to report her daughter missing, and an investigation began. As expected, law enforcement scoured the complex. They talked to all of the residents to find out if anyone had seen or heard anything. Many volunteers also mobilized to help look for Jennifer or any clues. A few hours later that same day, some children were playing hide-and-seek in a nearby field, and one of the kids tripped over something. This child just assumed this was their hiding friend. In fact, this child was somewhat excited that they had found their friend who they believed was hiding, but unfortunately, it was not. It was a naked little girl covered in blood. The children immediately ran for help, and the police quickly identified this little girl as Jennifer Shewitt. The good news, however, Megan, was that she was still breathing. Oh. But she was in very serious condition, however. First responders reported that her neck had been cut from ear to ear. And she also had suffered bites all over her body. Now, not human bite marks. She had actually been placed on a pile of fire ants. So she had ant bites all over her body. Okay. She was also extremely pale and covered in bruises and scratches. And there was also evidence of a sexual assault. How long do they think she was lying there, Amy? It was estimated that she had been lying in the field bleeding for about 14 hours when she was discovered. I mean, the fact that she was alive at all was miraculous. Yeah. And I think a shock to many. She was swiftly airlifted to a local hospital where she underwent hours of emergency surgery. Mm. Of course, her mother, Elaine, was notified, but she was not allowed to see Jennifer as the medical team first wanted her to be stabilized. And I can understand this on the part of the medical team, but as a mom, I can't imagine the agony Elaine must have experienced while waiting for updates on her daughter's condition. Right. Especially since it wasn't even clear at this point if her injuries were fatal or not. It's it's terrifying. The cuts to Jennifer's throat were so deep that it went through her trachea, but very fortunately, no major vessels were affected, and somehow she survived this brutal attack. The doctors were able to place her in a medically induced coma and insert a tracheotomy tube to save her life. Yeah, this is really unbelievable. You know what? I don't think I've heard of this case, which is what makes it even more unbelievable. I hadn't heard of it either. Although Jennifer was alive, they did tell her mother that this was going to be a long recovery and there was a very strong likelihood that her daughter would never be able to speak again. When Jennifer finally woke up, 
which, you know, she wasn't in a coma for that long, given the gravity of these injuries. It was just a couple of days. But when she did wake up, she was terrified of all men and she would not let male doctors or police near her. Now, this would lead law enforcement to believe that her assailant had probably been a male, which was likely assumed anyway, given the nature of the crime. Yeah. Unfortunately, at this time, this was the police's only lead. There had been very little evidence for them to go on. Now, while Jennifer was in recovery, I mentioned they didn't want to talk to her yet about the crime because they wanted her to get her strength back before, you know, re-traumatizing her by having to tell the story. So police canvassed the area and they did find in the field that she was dumped in Jennifer's clothing, along with a man's T-shirt and underwear, which they assumed belonged to the perpetrator. Otherwise, they didn't have anything. There were no eyewitnesses or earwitnesses. They had no suspect in mind. So the only thing they had at this time was the clothing and Jennifer's injuries as evidence. Mm. And remember, Megan, this is 1990. So forensics and DNA are in their infancy, making it much harder for the police to find someone without physical clues. Law enforcement's only option at this time was to question a recovering eight-year-old who had been brutally raped and left for dead. So Jennifer really held the key to this case. Also, I'm assuming that they preserved, they did find evidence and they preserved it. And I have a feeling I know where that's going to go. Yep. And to their credit, the lead investigator, Tim Cromie, he felt very strongly that Jennifer should not be forced to tell her story while she was recovering from the attack. So he did not push it. And he made sure that she regained a decent amount of her strength back Mm -hmm. before being asked to tell her story. Right. But law enforcement would eventually get her testimony. So Jennifer was not able to talk due to the tracheotomy, but she was able to write. Mm -hmm. And the police would ask Elaine to give her questions. Remember, Jennifer was very afraid of men at this point. And a lot of the law enforcement officers were male and they were not allowed to go in her hospital room. Right. So she would write out answers on a paper for her mother and then Elaine would give it to the police. Now, Jennifer was able to give investigators a lot of information. And you can see all of these notes online. You should definitely Google Jennifer Shewitt notes. It's very clear from the handwriting how young she is. It's heartbreaking because she was a young girl. She was only eight years old. She was able to say that her attacker's name was Dennis, although she spelled it D-I-N-N-E-S-E. She was able to describe his car in great detail, the color, where there were dents, She was able to say the type of cigarettes that were in the car, the type of beer that was in the car. Wow. She was able to tell them that Dennis said he was an undercover cop. She was able to draw a map of where he took her. Wow. This is a lot of helpful information, especially from a traumatized young eyewitness victim, but also, you know, eyewitness. How many days later was this after the attack that she was able to provide this information? So this was several days days after, quite possibly even getting into weeks. Although it might not seem long, you know, when you're dealing with investigating a violent crime, this is a very long time because by this point, the perpetrator could be out of the country. Yep. And I think the lead investigator did a great job by weighing, you know, the needs of the investigation with the needs of Jennifer. And I think he just saw that she was just too fragile to be asked about the investigation. But I also think that some valuable time was probably lost. Jennifer was also able to provide several details about Dennis's appearance. She said she did not know him at all, so it wasn't someone she knew. Mm. She said he had a dark black mustache. And a sketch artist visited Jennifer, and Jennifer helped create a composite sketch. And when it was complete, Jennifer said that it looked exactly like the man who had hurt her. 
Jennifer was also able to tell investigators that her assailant dragged her to the big open field after stopping in the parking lot of her elementary school where he raped her. So cops had quite a bit of information and they were starting to look for this man named Dennis who committed this heinous crime against this little girl. Did she say how he got her out? Did he actually physically come in and drag her out or lure her out? Did she say this? Yeah, so he picked her up while she was sleeping. She woke up when she felt herself in someone's arms. Okay. And he told her something had happened to her mother and he was a police officer and he was going to help her. Got it. And she says it wasn't until, even when they were in the car, she still believed this man. Okay. And it wasn't until they drove past her grandparents' home and she said, oh, my grandparents live there. Just take me there. And he said, no, no, I can't. And she said at that point, she knew that something wasn't right. Wow. Now, the police have a lot more information in this case than police would normally have because luckily their victim survived. Without Jennifer, they really had nothing. But with Jennifer, they had a lot of helpful information. But even with all that information, the police quickly ran out of leads. Mm. You know, they were hitting dead ends. They had no idea who could have done this. They provided Jennifer with witness protection for several months because it wasn't clear who the assailant was and whether or not he would come back because... Obviously, she survived and her attacker did not intend for her to survive. Right. The case would go cold pretty quickly. On a positive note, however, Jennifer's trachea healed enough that her voice returned and she regained her strength. That's great. Megan, she was discharged from the hospital and started school on time that fall. Get out of here. Remember, the attack happened only a few weeks prior to the start of the new school year. And in those few weeks, she healed and she went to school. And I think this just showcases how resilient and brave this little girl was. I mean, really remarkable. So I know this was a cold case. How long does the case go cold for before there's any new break or information? Again, 19 years passed with no leads. Jennifer was now 27 years old and her attacker was still at large. Now, I cannot imagine what it must have been like living all those years knowing that the person who almost killed you was still roaming free. And it's my understanding that her family stayed in the area. Really? But in 2009, police finally arrested a man by the name of Dennis Bradford. Now, Dennis was 20 in 1990, and he lived in the same apartment complex as Jennifer. He had gotten married about a year after the crime. His marriage was short-lived. Reportedly, his drinking led to the breakup. It's also likely, based on other evidence or what we know about him, that he just wasn't the best husband. Hold on. So he lived in the same apartment complex and he correctly identified his name as Dennis. Like, did the police miss this or was it just such a huge apartment complex? I mean, it just seems like this was kind of an obvious place to start. Same complex. You have a guy named Dennis. Let's go right here. Right. Yeah. And then they could have just done a show up or they could have done an eyewitness procedure at that point. I, I don't I'm, I hope I'm missing something. But to me, that seems like that's really like that would have been the first place to start. Yeah. And I dug for that information. I couldn't locate it. I hypothesize that perhaps maybe he was staying with someone else. Maybe he didn't live in the apartment complex for long. Maybe somehow he just flew under the radar. He wasn't home when they were questioning people. Maybe he left town for a little while. Yeah. I don't know, but... I also wonder, it could be a huge apartment complex, but it just seems like that would have been obvious starting place. I I agree, which is why I like to think that his name was not on the lease or the deed. Yeah. Because it seems like an obvious place to start was the apartment complex. Who has the name Dennis? Let's start there. 
the main reason it took police so long to locate him was because forensic technology needed time to catch up. You see, in 1996, Dennis was charged with attempted first-degree murder after he met a woman at a bar. He had assaulted her both physically and sexually and left her in a field for dead. Sounds pretty close to what he did to Jennifer, right? He's got the same M.O. and then they get to collect his DNA, right? Yeah, because at that time, Dennis was mandated to give a DNA sample and that sample was entered into CODIS. That's where they got the hit to Jennifer's case. Got it. But before we get there, let me tell you what happened in that case. So he pled not guilty. He went to trial in 1996. The charges were reduced from first degree murder to kidnapping and rape. And he was sentenced to 12 years in prison. Now, ready to be incensed? That's not enough time, first of all. That's not enough time for that offense. And now they're going to release him, like, ridiculously early, right? Yes, you think that's not enough time to be sentenced? How do you feel when I tell you that he was released after only serving three years? Yeah, this is the problem. This is the problem. And I knew you were going to say that. And I just don't, I can't wrap my head around this whatsoever. (sighs) Okay. Yeah, and... It sounds like a lot of cases we talk about where people reoffend while they're on parole because they're being released early after a violent offense. And we know a lot of times these people are career criminals, career offenders, and a couple of years in prison is just simply not enough for an attempted murder, rape and kidnapping. Of course. And he still would have been young as well in like prime offending years. Yep. So it's just it's all it's, it's all awful. So when he got out of prison, he relocated to Little Rock, Arkansas, where he continued to have run-ins with the law, but not for any violent crimes. He he got a DWI. He was charged with solicitation of a sex worker and a few other lower level offenses. But no one had yet made any connection between him and Jennifer's 1990 cold case, Mm. which I guess we can maybe understand because the fact that he moved to a different state made it more difficult for police to connect the two cases. Right. Now, Dennis had gotten married in 2004. He had three adult stepchildren and he was living a seemingly normal life when he was finally arrested for the heinous crimes against Jennifer almost two decades prior. Okay. There was, I'm assuming there was a cold case detective working this and, and that's how this came about. Would that be correct? Yeah, because the case, although cold, was still one that would stay in the minds of investigators because this was clearly a violent man who would likely strike again. And the fact that Jennifer had survived made it more of a priority because Jennifer was very much involved and she wanted closure and she wanted justice. After the FBI's CAR team was founded in 2005, that's the Child Abduction Rapid Deployment Team, the Dickinson detectives asked the FBI to help them with the cold case and a new lead detective was assigned to the case. Now, the first detective had done a great job, but it's always good to have fresh eyes on a cold case. Yeah. Forensics and DNA had come a long way by 2005, and the team decided that they would try to retest the DNA that they had collected from Jennifer's pajamas and the man's underwear that they had in evidence from all those years ago. This is why it's so important to preserve evidence. Because at the time, the results were inconclusive, but our DNA technology has improved that now these trace amounts could be useful. And by this time in the mid-2000s, the technology was able to pinpoint on a small sample and they ran it through CODIS and they got a hit and that hit was on Dennis Bradford. Wow. Once arrested, Dennis actually made a full confession. He also expressed remorse. He showed a lot of emotion. He said he thought of Jennifer Daly. He had assumed that she was deceased 
And he says he doesn't know why he did it. But again, he he did take responsibility for it. And he was sent to jail to await his trial. So he confessed, but he didn't take a plea yet. Or maybe one wasn't, you know, completely offered or there's a lot of details, I guess. But nevertheless, I guess he was awaiting trial, possibly. Yeah. So it seems like they were still in the process. As we know, at the time of an interrogation, you don't have plea bargaining. Plea bargaining happens after They likely arrested him and he was probably arraigned. And this is the point where plea bargaining proceedings would occur. However, while Dennis was awaiting proceedings, he died by suicide in his jail cell in May of 2010. So Jennifer was grateful to see that her attacker was apprehended. However, she never got her day in court. And Jennifer had written a victim impact statement that she intended to read during the court proceedings. And she was upset that she never got to read that statement. Of course. Do we know how he died? Yeah, I do believe that um, he was found hung in his jail cell. Okay. Okay. I figured. Yeah, that's disappointing. I understand. Like, after all that time, your perpetrators identified and she just wanted to say her piece and face him and probably let him know the ways in which... He impacted her and that that's disappointing to not be able to get that out for her. Well, you know what? Jennifer got a chance to read her victim impact statement. However, it was not at trial like she intended. She went to visit his grave 20 years to the day of her abduction and she read it there. And I want to read you a few parts of it. Okay. It's a little too long to read the whole thing, but you could find it online. Okay. She says, I waited 19 years, two months and three days to find out your last name and for you to be caught. I knew your first name was Dennis because you told me before you raped and attempted to murder me on August 10th, 1990. When you cut my throat from ear to ear, you assumed that I would die. Or if I lived, that I wouldn't be able to talk. Well, you chose the wrong little 45-pound 8-year-old girl to try and murder because for 19 years, I thought of you every single day and helped in searching for you. Every year that has passed has given me more strength and drive for when I finally would be face-to-face with you as I am today. It goes on. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I do just want to read part of the last paragraph. Today, I sit in front of you as a 28-year-old woman and would like you to know that I am not a victim because of what happened 20 years ago. Your plan the night of August 10th, 1990 was not the same plan that God had for me. You may have taken away my voice for a short period of time, and you may have taken away a piece of my being and innocence that I will never get back, but you have never taken away my strength or my will to survive. I've waited for this day for 20 years of my life, and I hope you now feel as weak as you made me feel all those years ago as a child. While you played out your fantasy on my tiny body and attacked me, you made me feel this small. Today, I hope you feel this small sitting in front of me because I definitely feel like the strong one. And then it goes on at the end. Dennis Bradford, I am not your victim. I am victorious. Wow. I got chills. Yeah. Yeah. So for all Jennifer suffered, she used her traumatic experience to help others. Mm -hmm. So she's now a motivational speaker who travels around the country, who advocates for children and young survivors of sexual assault. So she uses her story to help others. That's fantastic. Jennifer resides in Texas. She got married in 2014 and has two children via IVF as the attack by Dennis Bradford left her infertile. She still went on to have children, too. Oh, my gosh. She really she really is a remarkable woman. That's all I can say. She really this story kind of wowed me in terms of resilience. So did Jennifer get justice? So when we talk about justice, you know, people tend to think about just what happens in the 
courts. And when people talk about closure, they seem to think there's an end point, right? Like, oh, okay, well, now it's over. But I've always thought of it differently. And justice has different meanings for different people. And closure, I don't know if it ever really happens for everyone, because I think it was Kim who said, or it might have been someone else. I mean, you, you, you don't get over it. You just get through it. Yeah. And I wonder how, how that plays out in Jennifer's story as well. In some of the research I've conducted with exonerees, I've explored this idea of closure and have come to realize that there's no such thing as closure. And post-traumatic growth seems to be a more appropriate way to explain it. That makes a lot more sense to me. I think people just like the word. They think it's neat. Like, oh, we've given you, you know, Mm -hmm. they have their closure. They can move on. And I think it's so much more complicated than that. Yeah. And post-traumatic growth just refers to the transformations that people go through after experiencing a traumatic event. And I think it's clear in this case that Jennifer did experience post-traumatic growth in some senses. I haven't heard that term, but I really appreciate it. So what about Dennis Bradford? I mean, he was clearly a chronic offender who continued to harm people after his attack on Jennifer, as his 1996 conviction proved. And I would bet there's other victims as well. I think he just happened to get caught for that one. I suspect he was a career criminal offender. So he had versatility in his crimes. They could range from petty to obviously the most serious. I'm sure he had other crimes as well for which he wasn't caught. And I'm sure the only reason he probably slowed down later in life is because he aged, was starting to age out of crime. And he got married. He got also, married, which created social that bond social theory, bond. Right? Uh-huh. Yep. So yep. he's got the social bond of marriage. He's got the social bond of having a family. He's mm-hmm. aging out of crime. So essentially, he was just slowing down in his criminal career. But I bet it wouldn't be his last offense either. No, I don't think so. I mean, we don't know enough about his background to get a full picture of who he was right. and what may have led him to a life of crime. But it is possible that Jennifer's case was a crime of opportunity. Perhaps this was his first crime. He saw Mm -hmm. an open window or an unlocked window, and he saw an innocent little girl inside. PSA, lock your windows if you're on the first floor of an apartment. By no way do I blame Elaine or Jennifer. This was in the 90s, and I slept with my windows open and unlocked as well. It's a different time. Of course, no. I mean, basically, we don't need to necessarily know all of the motivations because we can very clearly characterize him as a career offender, a repeat sexual predator. So not just a sex offender, but a predator and likely a serial killer or a serial killer in the yeah. making. And as we mentioned before, I'm, you know, I'm surprised that he lived so close to the scene of the crime. And I'm surprised that nobody came forward because he was a dead ringer. For the composite sketch. You can look this up online as well. I was going to ask you about that. The fact that they had his name and a sketch that was so close, it is surprising. So I wonder if he fled the area or if he was a transient Mm -hmm. and he was not actually from the area. I'm not really sure of the answers to those questions. But remember, this crime occurred in the 90s. And I know you were alive in the 90s, Megan. Do you remember this feeling of stranger danger? And there was this sentiment I know when I grew up, there was this, you know, don't talk to strangers, you know, be very careful. And our listeners probably know this from other cases, but less than 1% of missing children are actually abducted by strangers. The vast majority of missing children are runaways and following that would be family abductions. Why do you think there was such a hysteria over stranger danger? This was when we kind of moved from, well, remember, there were somewhat higher crime rates in the 70s and 80s. So we moved to more conservative law and order, tough on crime movements. But coupled with that, there were also a couple really high profile 
child abductions and murders that happened in the early 1990s. So if you recall, this was Adam Walsh was Mm -hmm. abducted, Megan Kanka, Jacob Wetterling. So I think coupled with the fact that there was a crackdown on crime and like it was a crackdown on, you know, we're going to get harsh on serious offenders. You had these high profile cases. And when the two coincided, it became a campaign for new legislation sex offender registration, and which we are, had, but community notification laws were passed in the 90s. This became kind of a platform, and Stranger Danger was definitely very, you know, much instilled into us, I remember, during that era. I think I came, like, might have been a little bit after I got a little bit older, to be honest. I think I was more in my teens when that was, you know, instilled into younger children. Do you know today that parents are told not to teach their children Stranger Danger? Do you know why? No, I don't know why. There's been some studies that have shown that stranger danger actually harms children because stranger danger leads children to believe that all adults are bad or all strangers are bad. Yeah, it increases their anxiety and distrust or mistrust and and whatnot. I I think the idea now is to teach kids about safe adults versus tricky adults. You know, just because someone's a stranger, there are ways to spot if they're, you know, a trustworthy stranger or a safe stranger. I also think the numbers were a little bit higher you know, back in the 80s and 90s about stranger abductions, partially due to obviously what the media chose to report on at that time. But today, everything's just also safer because we have all this technology and surveillance. Yeah, surveillance has, you know, decreased the opportunities in the 90s. We're right on the cusp of that. Mm -hmm. I also think, Amy, when we're educating kids about stranger danger, why don't we like, why can't it be an all round education? Like, not only just about the possibility of strangers being dangerous, so safe, you know, versus unsafe, but also about recognizing that, you know, someone you know could also be inappropriate or, you know, if you're mm-hmm. feeling uncomfortable, even if it's with someone you know, to recognize that. I would love to see an emphasis on both because we know that most people are offended against by someone they know. So mm-hmm. I just think that should be incorporated as a more, you know, well-rounded approach to recognizing danger. And I do think it is because we now have the statistics to help us understand who's the most likely to harm children, Right. Right. Talking about the safer today with technology, I don't think we need it. But if we wanted to throw into that conversation, a lot of my children's friends also now have like gizmo watches. Have you heard of these? No, because I don't have kids. <laughs> so there. Yeah. But you you have children around you. Um, I do. <laughs> so a lot of children now have like GPS tracking devices on them at all times. A lot of children right. have, you know, Apple watches or the gizmo watches. It's like A kid's version of an Apple Watch where you can only text and call, I think, three or four people in your family, but it's a GPS tracker. So you can know where your kids are at all time. And that's in addition to all the surveillance now. I mean, I like that. I think it makes kids safer. I do. So I I appreciate that the technology has evolved. I think, what do you have? You can share your phone location, right? Mm -hmm. Like with with someone. I mean, there are a number of ways to definitely further protect yourself. And so I do think it's, it's harder for stranger abductions today. Mm -hmm. You know, luckily, the perpetrator was apprehended and it seems like Jennifer is able to now use her trauma to help other people. Yes. If you are somebody who would like to learn more or to support causes like the ones we talked about today, I would suggest you go to National Center for Missing and Exploited Children at missingkids.org. And I also think this case highlights the importance of supporting cold case organizations. And if you're interested in learning more about Jennifer's story, 
no matter how cold they get, there's always, you know, there's always a victim. Even if it's not a direct victim, there's an indirect victim. And people should always be brought to justice when they harm people. I wholeheartedly agree. And I'm so glad to see there was a positive outcome. And she is just an amazing role model, I think. Such an inspirational story at the end. Thank you so much for this case, Amy. Thank you. And thank you for listening today. But Megan, before we go today, we have some questions from our supporters. Okay, let's hear them. You're going to love one of these questions. I'm going to start with the one that I know you're going to be very excited to talk about because this listener was curious about Jodi Arias. Oh boy, here we go. So this listener wrote about how she sees that there's jealousy and rejection as when you look at the motivation for why Jodi killed her ex-boyfriend, Travis. Yes. But she also wants to know if whether or not she could have also been angry at the fact that Jody was good enough for Travis to still have a sexual relationship with while he was still holding on to these Mormon beliefs and whether or not we believe that that could have gone into the motivation or the anger that led to the murder of Travis. 100%. Jody was rejected. She was angry. She tried to keep him with the one, you know, way that she kind of knew how by offering him the sexual relationship. Thinking, I think that, you know, if she kept offering it and if she kept a relationship with him, he would just see that she was the one, you know, that he was supposed to be with. And I think it really burned her that he would still continue to have relations with her. But he was seeking to, you know, find a kind of, quote, good Mormon woman to Mm -hmm. build a life with. I think this absolutely infuriated her. She had so much anger about this, so much jealousy. And I think this is a classic case of uh, I'm angry, but if I can't have you, no one else is going to have you. And it was expressed uh, in the most violent and angry way. Yeah. So I'm I'm wondering if you know this case more than I do. You've really researched it a lot. But no, 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 Amy, it's not that I researched it. It's that I watched every bit of trial in this case, <laughs> that, literally fine, that... from start to finish. Okay. okay. But I guess the question that I have also is, do you think it, it was... The, if you can't have him, no one can. That was the straw that broke the camel's back or the anger that I'm good enough for you to sleep with, but not good enough for you to be with. It was the perfect storm. And remember, mm-hmm. Travis was scheduled to go on a vacation, which was yes. new, with a woman mm-hmm. who he had been courting. And I think that was actually the proverbial straw that broke mm-hmm. the camel's back. Thank you for that question. Yeah. The next question is, what quote, true crime misconceptions does the public often make? Oh, so many of them. Okay, you can go first. I think it's changed a bit because when we used before podcasts and most of the true crime content was on TV, I think the most common misconception was that these things happen quickly. Oh, we found the DNA. We run the DNA. Here's the results and case closed. So I think that was a very common misconception. And I think a misconception that continues throughout, whether it be documentaries, podcasts, TV shows, is that if somebody is found guilty, then they are in fact guilty. That is a huge misconception. That was one of the ones I was going to say. So that that's definitely true. Another misconception, most cases are resolved in a trial because trial is the hallmark of justice. Not so plea bargaining is the hallmark of justice in our country. So I think the trial phenomenon total misconception that's been popularized, you know, in like Law and Order and other shows for better or for worse. Well, because for entertainment value, it wouldn't be that interesting to watch a plea bargain, right? It happens quickly and it's not as interesting as sitting through a trial. No, yeah. exactly. That's what I'm saying. For 
for better or for worse. I think there's just so still so many misconceptions about the evidence being science just because people call it science when, it, you know, a lot of it is not scientific at all. It's, you know, totally subjective. Oh, my gosh, we could go on and on about this one. But, yeah, total misconceptions about the process of justice in general. And thank you so much for those questions. There are always such great questions we get from our listeners. And thank you all again for listening today. And we will catch you next time on Women in Crime. Women in Crime is hosted by Megan Sachs and Amy Schlossberg. Our producer and editor is James Varga. Music composition is by Dessert Media. If you enjoy the show, please remember to subscribe and leave a review. You can also support the show through Patreon, where you can get access to additional ad-free content such as virtual happy hours and an extra full-length episode each month. For more information, visit patreon.com slash womenincrime. Sources for today's episode include CBS News, People Magazine, and A Nightmare in Dickinson, The Amazing Jennifer Shewitt by Frank Weber.